I think everybody has a process. It's just sometimes a shitty, undocumented process that nobody likes. Basically, people are either a poet or a librarian. Poets need librarians, and librarians need poets. Having a few simple shared metrics that everyone in the organization can understand and keep in their head at all times. We could go on a whole branch about how developer products are special cases um, because it's the one case where developers are their own customers. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harva, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. So what do you like best about continuous delivery? Uh, My favorite thing about continuous delivery is the community, that there's so many interesting people working in this space in terms of tools, in terms of processes, in terms of people implementing it and reinventing product delivery organizations. It's just a really kind of fun and interesting area that attracts a lot of good people. Well, you're certainly somebody who's reinvented many organizations, so now would be a great time for you to introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Adam Gross. couple notable facts slash trivia questions. I had a startup that was one of the first heavy bit companies. It was wow. called Cloud Connect. And uh, most recently, uh, for about the past three years, I served as CEO of Heroku, uh, which is uh, uh, now part of Salesforce. That's really cool. So you started off as a product manager, or how did you get into product management? That's an excellent question. I think the way that most people get into product management, at least from more the startup point of view, which is accidentally and not realizing that they are one. (laughs) So uh, there are probably a lot of people, and I'm in this category, who are product managers before they knew what product management was. And um, I started my first company a long, long time ago. It was my uh, galaxy far, far away. Far, far away. Um, And we all had 70s haircuts, and there were two sons. It was uh, uh, an early web analytics company, and it was me and two other people, and I was certainly doing product management then along with others, but truly I don't know that anybody had ever, I'd had a conversation at that point with anybody about like, this is what product management is or was, which is a shame. And I'm sad about that because I've always been at the kind of intersection of a lot of different fields. And, you know, I studied a little bit of computer science, just a tiny bit in school, but I was always more attracted to the kind of, you know, more uh, problems that kind of cross boundaries and, you know, the business and the user and the experience and the opportunity and what I now know is product management, but I didn't know that in college, that that was a thing I didn't know as a discipline until much later. And again, I think that's probably an experience that a lot of people have. So that's interesting. I think a, a very classic definition of, of what a product manager is, is that intersection of, of UX and business and, and, and tech that you just described. Is that for you what, what a product manager is? Product management um, can be a lot of different things. And I will uh, use this opportunity to tell a story, which is the kind of two flavors of product managers that I think there are. And I think in my experience of kind of building teams, and, and hiring people in general, it's really important to be explicit about which kind you're looking for. One of my kind of most basic management philosophies, which I owe to a, a former colleague of mine, Trevor Rubel, is this idea of poets and librarians. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that basically people are either 
a poet or a librarian. Poets need librarians and librarians need poets, but it's always important to know which one you are and which one you need and you're looking for. And a different way of thinking about that is there are people who are content providers and there are people who are process providers in an organization. Process provider is the person who's going to make the trains run on time. Content provider is the person who's going to entertain the passengers on route. And uh, both are essential. And I, I use that somewhat tortured story to say, I think product managers kind of fall into one of those two camps. I think there's always kind of a blend. But in my experience, you tend to have people who are a little more process-oriented and who are you know, really essential at keeping the organization in sync, in tune, making sure that there's a really kind of holistic notion of what the product is and that all the pieces are in place in order to kind of deliver that ultimately for a good customer experience. And then there are people who are more content-oriented, which is they maybe have a little bit more of the vision. They're going to have maybe a little more of a, a experience orientation. They might be more involved in you know the actual functionality of a given feature. Mm. And uh, yeah, need this, both. This is a, a super interesting definition that this poets versus librarians thing because I think it comes down as well to what you need at various stages of a startup like uh, you see a lot of startups that have librarians before they're in product market fit and they never hit product market fit so I, I disagree I think sometimes you have a lot of poets wandering off in the wilderness and they never like they never ship anything mm. I mean I, yes I, I, I agree with that but you definitely need a poet before like you know, if you're going to have a startup that, that that's innovative anyway, it feels to me that that there has to be a poet on board. I think they could be the same person, but I think where I've seen early stage the two person startup fail is that they mm-hmm. they're, they're poets and they they never ship. Mm-hmm. Like like they just keep kind of being like, oh, let's keep you know, it basically becomes their hobby mm. of let's Re- keep adding another feature before we're ready to show it to anybody. Well, reflecting on my on my startups at Circle. I was much more poet than librarian, and we didn't really have a librarian until much later on. And then Jim, who who took over for me as CEO, is is an excellent librarian, and it was exactly what Circle needed at at that stage. But in my new company, Ellen is is the librarian, and I'm the poet, and like that that mix is a really really good mix. We've called we we we've talked about this a lot, but just me and her. And what kind of language words. do you use to, to to talk about these distinctions? So this is language I would never use about myself, but uh, it's it's language that Ellen uses, um, and and sh- she says that I'm the one with the product vision, and that you need someone with the with the vision, and that that's absolutely language that makes me feel uncomfortable. But, but I agree with that. Yeah, it abdicates the other person's role, and what I think is the person as the visionary wanting that mm-hmm. other person's kind of contribution to kind of so firmly delineate those use that kind of language. So you've you've been involved in several startups. Do you, do you feel like you were a poet or a librarian or both? Oh, I you know I will never admit this, but I'm a poet and only a poet. <laughs> like that's always going to be my kind of center of gravity. I've become better at being a librarian, and I've become, as good managers should, more mindful of the kinds of skills that kind of complement me. But it's interesting. I've become more interested in librarianship as I've advanced in my career and as I've been responsible for larger organizations because the kind of art and act of getting a whole bunch of people to act collectively as a team is just such an interesting one and um, is, is one that more things they don't teach you in school. Like, where's, you know, there, there aren't a lot, there's not a lot of like places where I've learned other than doing 
Um, well, gee, how do you do that? And what does it look like successfully? And you think of you know, the, the delta between success and failure for so many organizations and so many startups. It's just you know, that kind of basic being able to get your act together and the kind of fidelity and quality of discussion that we have as a community around what are good processes and bad processes, how do mm-hmm. we kind of make this all work, we will you know, go on endlessly about the different ways of storing a JSON document in mm-hmm. a you know, non or semi-relational data store and the merits of that pro and con. But as a community, we're not as good about having discussions about what kinds of processes and mm-hmm. um, uh, models and org you well, know, there's ideas. an allergy in, in a lot of software engineers. Like they're, they're, they're allergic to process and, and anyone who, who brings it in and suggests it. I don't think in functional orgs, but I mean, we, we've, we've definitely talked about this before on the podcast about why engineers are often so against this sort of thing. I think everybody has a process. It's just sometimes a shitty undocumented process that nobody likes. Because they don't like the process bringers. They don't like librarians to come along and, and tell them their, their poems belong in books. Yeah, and librarianship rightfully sometimes gets a bad rap if it's done unempathetically, mm-hmm. which, you know, the unique nature of software development and the fact that it's ultimately a creative act as opposed to a manufacturing one, I think historically has kind of frustrated the introduction of processes into mm-hmm. into those environments. And at the same time, you have the very kind of unique nature of software development as kind of an individual act. And there's a little bit of the single person myth hero mm-hmm. yep. that is propagated in our culture and our understanding of what it even means to be a startup. You know, that kind of classic uh, heroic organizational behavior that at times is even necessary. So it's 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 understandably kind of confusing. Adam, I, I mean, I, I'd love to hear some of your stories about, you said you, you, you were a product manager, but without knowing you were, what were some of the things that you started doing that you realize now were product managerial? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's, you know, ultimately, and I go back to my first startup, really, you know, um, trying to, to define features in a way that, had notions of kind of completeness and doneness, kind of very clumsily having discussions uh, around, you know, what represented kind of 1.0, when you mm-hmm. ship, yeah. when you don't ship. Yeah. Um, I remember vividly having, you know, pretty heated discussions about what was kind of good enough for 1.0. Yeah. We subsequently have kind of all kinds of new language that we can use, like MVP, that Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of talks about these product development styles, but all of those are fundamentally product management kinds of, of questions. Yeah, so when you started slipping into this, was it a natural thing of, oh, I enjoy this, or was it because nobody else was doing it? Or? Oh, no, it's always where, at least personally, my center of gravity has been. Because ultimately it's, you know, here's a, there's a bunch of, you know, technology change, and there's a bunch of interesting problems to solve. And how do those ultimately kind of fuse to create something? And what do the, all those intersection points look like? And something that's kind of come up a little bit more as kind of PM is another kind of branch of this very kind of complicated and amorphous field is then there's kind of another element of that, which is kind of the go-to-market right yeah. piece. Mm-hmm. And how those all kind of synthesize into here's a good idea for a thing that can kind of get some some loft. Those kinds of problems are always the most fascinating for me. 
And, you know, just, of course, just the raw creativity of it. That when you use a beautiful product and the kinds of, you know, just respect you have for its thoughtfulness and how it kind of embodies a, it's a physical representation of a elegant solution to a problem. And I think that's very attractive to, you know, yeah. people like us. Yeah, I got a, a, I didn't get a software engineering degree. I got a classical engineering degree. So I like to think of myself as I like building things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I like building a product. And even though I don't code anymore, I'm still building. And then this is to confuse our analogies even more, at least for me personally, you kind of get to the stage where what you're PMing is your org organization. Yeah, well, that was the next thing is yeah. like, now I'm, well, I, I mean, I, Adam, you have so many great stories. I mean, how did, how did you build a great org? How did you build a great product? I'm, I'm trying oh, to like, what, what, are, what are some of the really horrific ones and you know, <laughs> things that I can, uh, you know, I remember there was an interesting thing that happened in kind of the field of PM-ness. I mean, it's just so fascinating, like software development is such a strange and unique art because, especially doing it as a team, because all of the core conditions are constantly evolving. Yes. Mm-hmm. And if you roughly, clumsily kind of break up the different eras of software product development into decades. You know, in the 90s, we had pretty traditional, what we could today consider kind of traditional, mm-hmm. rigorous, um, yeah. you know, waterfall style modalities, which themselves, just the core act of taking bits and putting them on uh, a CD and, you know, shipping them off to the customer and the kind of nature of that being your product boundary injected or required all kinds of physics yeah. in in the process mm-hmm. that kind of you know rippled through the organization. So then in the 2000s when we moved to what today we would call cloud models, the nature of the product delivery far outpaced yeah. our ability to backfill it with kind of new coherent organizationals and yeah. ideas and principles for product development which was why if you think back to the you know I think modern pmness and you know really kind of started you know with probably like an Eric Rees and mm-hmm. what's that like 07 08 yeah. kind yeah. of time frame which is also co-emergent with cloud infrastructure AWS mm-hmm. stuff like that and you're removing so much of the natural slowness from the system yeah. it's such an acceleration to not have Okay, well, we've got to pause long enough at least to rack and stack yep. routers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Instead, it's just this like incredibly fluid, fast environment where you now have ideas about iteration and all these things that didn't exist before. I think in the late 2000s, there was kind of a, a revolt against PM. Oh, yeah. And a, a lot of people just saying, I don't understand what these people do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If we don't, we're not operating on these cycles. We have direct I- input from our customers because mm-hmm. we can see what they're doing and not doing. Um, then, you know, why do we need these people to go interview customers yeah. or, mm-hmm. you know, be this kind of mechanized ear? Yeah. You know, these are just wasteful bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. And, that was a dark time. At, at best, overhead, and at worst, the pointy headed boss. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and then you got this other phenomenon that came after that, which was, and this is what I'd say is kind of maybe the early 2010s mode, where people are like, okay, you know, we get that building experiences is hard. Mm-hmm. Then we had the rise of the Hero PM. Mm-hmm. And the Hero PM was an artifact of consumer technology companies where there was the one PM who could, because the PM to user ratio 
right, was so high for the mm-hmm. first time in PM history that 1 p.m. was representing 10 million users. Mm-hmm. And so their ability to kind of synthesize mm-hmm. product direction or experiences out of that, you know, imbued them with this kind of godlike character and they became idolized. And if you remember mm-hmm. kind of maybe we go back in TechCrunch five, six years and look at like the PMs at Twitter, right? They all took mm-hmm. on this, you know, or, or, or Instagram. or Pat, Yeah, exactly. That kind of yeah. like idled PM thing that it's just this, you know, special magic skill, which I'm glad PMs got more respect, but then I thought it was it was then it just became well this is irreproducible. You just you know lucky if you have a magician on staff, mm-hmm. um, and I think hopefully now we've gotten to a little bit more of a normalized place, but we're probably missing something that I can't see now. Well, I, I think that 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 transition that you described in, in the sort of early 2000s, where where people revolted against against the PMs, was all, almost sort of the the democratization of the of the user data. Yep. That suddenly engineers could see user data for the first time themselves. Which is a great thing. I mean, engineers being, it's this is a whole separate uh, topic, but I'm a huge fan, and this is something that we absolutely implemented at Heroku, was having a few simple shared metrics yep. mm-hmm. that everyone in the organization can mm-hmm. Understand and keep in their head at all times. Mm-hmm. As obviously our ability to slice and dice all kinds of user data increases, there's a natural tendency to want to kind of measure more mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. kind of report more. Yeah. And the hard thing for, I do think this is a PM's job too, ultimately, uh, for a PM to do is to measure less mm-hmm. yeah. and to find yeah. the few key things. And I say this because when you do that well, it's very easy for an engineer to fit that in their head mm-hmm. and bake that into their thinking every day. So a classic example is just something like activation rate. right? And so at, mm-hmm. that means different things, obviously, for different organizations. For Heroku, it means have you actually pushed code. Mm-hmm. And by understanding what our activation is rate is, understand how it's trending to get an email every day that just has that one number in it or one mm-hmm. small set of numbers, it's really easy for all the engineers to put that in your head. Mm-hmm. And then as a product manager, those engineers start doing are aligned to your goals. Yeah. Which so I, I don't want to in some which I think is is kind of this new modern healthy, mm-hmm. you know, symbiotic relationship between PM and Edge. I don't want to say that's a bad thing that dev has engineering has so much more involvement mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just that kind of old blind implementer um, well, I, mode. I think it's a it's a sort of artifact of people Actually, being able to quantify what it was anymore. Yeah. Okay. Like in the old days, and you're you're like you know shipping CDs. Do do you really know if users are having a bad experience? Like, what what does a bad experience even mean? Yeah. Whereas now you can measure failure rates, you can measure activation rates, you can measure all these things that that you can have numbers and have like direct reports to act on as an engineer. Allow which allows the PMs to a certain extent to focus on higher. It's uh, really value. amazing. It's amazing how much we don't talk about this, right? How Totally radically different. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Building software. Now I'm talking yeah. a more like yeah. SaaS versus yeah, enterprise yeah, so- yeah. enterprise software and CDs. Those practices are as different as like you know aeronautics and medicine, and yet we treat them like organizations treat them with as they're largely interchangeable. This mm-hmm. fallacy that you can do both or that you can kind of move from one modality to the other, they could not be more different. Well, I, I made the transition. I had a I had a really humbling experience last week where I, for whatever reason, I went home and I looked at my LinkedIn profile. Mm-hmm. 
And Do you, all, is that does that happen a lot? That I go home and look <laughs> at my LinkedIn look profile. profile? Mm, that's uh, Tuesdays. Well, the, so sitting then, at home with a glass of wine in my no, LinkedIn so the, profile. <laughs> so the embarrassing thing How is how was that experience for you? Um, all the stuff that I was extremely proud of from early in my career. Um, so like I managed the supported platform matrix. Mm. I ran a release a year. Everything that it had put on literally made me cringe. Mm -hmm. No, it made me cringe with embarrassment because I was like, everything has changed so much. Like, so a supported platform matrix, that was a vestige of you cared about what database people were using, what app server, and you had to manage all this. I mean, we have it today. We have what what version of Android are you supporting? Which browsers are, are you getting? Yeah, but it was it was just like so. I literally I took a hatchet to my LinkedIn profile. I'm like, it's like all the skills I thought were so great. Then mm-hmm. I'm like, these are all obsolete. These, these yeah, are not but the they're same. you know, it's it's pride. You've like you know, you fought some old wars. You don't retire your medals. You wear I, them proudly. Uh, <laughs> I guess I guess I mean I can I can press undelete, but like undelete uh, the the stuff I was so proud of. I'm like that's not relevant anymore. I, I remember the first the first thing I ever saw about SaaS, and it was an old Joel on Software article about how they now host, I think it was Fogbugs, and they talked about the ability, uh, I think they were writing C++ code, they talked about the ability that when a seg fault happened, you could log it and know that it happened, and you could like you know, have the log and you could go fix it, maybe even before the engineer got it, or before the user saw it. And I think this is about 2000. I read this, and it just it just blew my mind. <laughs> it was just like, oh wow, this is this is how software should be built. Yeah, and it's you know it's interesting how different organizations and for anybody, you know, kind of working on their product management career, you know, building an aesthetic for how different organizations view product management and what that job is mm-hmm. is something. Um, that's helpful. I'm reminded. I don't know what the numbers are now. I, rem- I remember like learning. I don't know eight years ago or something that the PM to engineer ratio at Gmail was something like 300 to 1. You know, there's like one PM. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, that's not a culture I mean, that, that... That explains a that, lot about That does explain Gmail. a lot. And um, it's not a culture that values PM. And it's like, okay, that's okay. You know, Gmail is what it is, and it's good at what it's good, and mm-hmm. I use it every day. Um, maybe that ratio has changed. But, uh, you know, you can get by. You know, you can build products. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think Google is a, is a very specific animal with regard to PM. They have their own school of thought on it that I think differs from almost anyone else in the in the industry. It's also interesting how UX and PM have become conflated mm-hmm. in a way. I've always found that a little bit confusing. I think of them as very different disciplines, but I mean, I I think of the the designer as somebody who is responsible for literally the experience. Mm-hmm. Like, what is what do people see when they log in? I think the PM is responsible for the overall. It's made it harder for people to understand the PM role because all of a sudden mm-hmm. you factor out this design function and it's like, mm-hmm. a, which is appropriate, obviously, but it's yeah. like, well, well, you know, if these people are designing the screens and you know, responsible for the experience, then mm. you, you you run the risk of the PM being back to paper. Well, pressure. very often you'll ask a designer what their what their role is, and they describe it very much as as a PM role, as like they're they're the voice of the maybe maybe not the voice of the user, but like they're they're the person who understands the experience and designs the experience, and it's like, well. That's a PM role, and how do you how do you decide how do you split up the, those responsibilities? Yeah, I mean, I it, I'd love to hear. So you, you said before you saw that the PM's role had totally I'd like to say migrated rather than diverged. How do you think it's changed? Yeah, I I hope that what's happened is that PMs can be part of 
you know, relatively small teams that have a lot of autonomy. One positive effect of kind of all these core technology changes and kind of, you know, the, the, the just the increased kind of fluidity of things like cloud infrastructure is it makes it easier for there to be um, more kind of more heterogeneity in architectures and in kind of underlying technologies. And that in turn gives a team and their PM the opportunity to employ more and different things uh, in order to come up with whatever solution they're they're coming up with. So a random example is, you know, five years ago, not that long in the grand scheme of things, if you're working on some pick your favorite SaaS or developer application, you probably had to use like a relational data store or maybe a non, you know, maybe a Mongo, whatever. But like your your core data primitives were probably set. Mm-hmm. The idea that a development team of five, ten people could introduce new data primitives into the solution was probably going to introduce a level of operational risk or complexity that would be prohibitive for the for the organization. And so you had you had a kind of much more constrained technology environment. Today, my hope and my experience, certainly at places like Roku, is that a team can have much more autonomy in what they're able to effectively vendor into their solutions because they can utilize all these new cloud services that mm-hmm. you know companies like ours are making. And as a result, you get a PM that can have uh, and an edge team as well, but a PM in their own function, much more autonomy and ultimately creativity and impact than you might have found previously. The downside to that heterogeneity is that if you have more kind of decision making and autonomy happening at a team level, net a good thing, it can be harder for the PM to have repeatable processes that they're inheriting from the organization that helps them make them successful. I found this cuts both ways, that you can have a a PM who in some ways represents the kind of local CEO of a business, which is a great and empowering thing, except when they have to reinvent a whole bunch of non-core functions and processes Mm -hmm. that are just heterogeneous between the teams, that Mm -hmm. because you have a very kind of local team environment, you haven't created standardization from. So there's a balance between in the kind of modern technology milieu, how you ultimately construct uh, these teams and I think set them up to be successful. Mm. Yeah. What were the ratios that you had when you first started out of PMs to Eng and how did where did you end up and how did you try to ensure continuity between the different teams at your prior jobs? That's a good question. I don't think I started at Heroku in, in late twenty thirteen and I don't you know, developer, we could go on a whole branch about how <laughs> developer products are special cases um, because it's the one case where developers are their own customers. Mm-hmm. And so that further complicates what it means to create a PM culture in an organization like that. And I think, in the best possible sense of that, Heroku suffered from that, that our developers were so good mm-hmm. at creating products for developers that we had never built a strong PM culture. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I think we were able to do well, and I now think it's a great place to be a PM, and we have a lot of amazing uh, PMs who've been hugely impactful there. But you know, it was a process of of helping the organization understand what that role is, and we had to you know untangle a lot of stuff, like what's the PM's role in architecture decisions, yeah, mm-hmm. and um, you know, some of these things can have a pretty meaningful impact on on user experience or capability. So. But at the same time, a PM isn't an architect, yeah. and that's a, a failure mode. So how do you how do you avoid that, and how do you create ultimately a kind of repeatable uh, model 
for what the PM can be in a, in a function like that. So how did you untangle that? I mean, I certainly was on the other side of it. Of um, Some people expected a PM to basically, they were at the level where they were doing object diagrams. And I thought that was a huge mistake. And other PMs were basically there and they're like, I don't really know what the product does. I just show up for work every day. One of the things that, that I certainly instituted follows both my style and it's something that I would, I would do again is to really have the PM lean on communication skills. That the PM's job at its most bare is to represent the kind of North Star of the product and be able to kind of characterize where the product is on that journey at any time and be able to articulate that clearly in a group setting, you know, where this thing is. You know, I can think of, you know, I'll, I'll pick a random product that, you know, we worked on, maybe like um, uh, Apache Kafka on Heroku or Heroku Connect, a product I was uh, intimately involved in. If the PM can't communicate clearly where this product is going, including the uncertainties, then the likelihood that that team knows where it's going and that this thing even has a kind of reasonable direction versus is just kind of circling around is that's just kind of the ultimate test. So that that ability to really be able to think about the North Star, to be able to think about the business problems that you're solving, reasonably be able to connect that to some prioritization of things that you're working on, that for me is kind of the ultimate test. I have a question, but Paul, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm so interested in product management because I, I started off as an engineer and then I was a product manager, so it's something I have a lot of affinity for. Mm. Yeah, my, my, my own path is not, has not been product manager except accidentally. Uh, and it's, uh, it's interesting to, to hear always when, when people have actual ideas of, of how it works rather than uh, me and, and the many people who sort of just end up in that role without, uh, without any idea of, of, of how we got there or, or how it is done. Yeah, and I'm a big believer in you know, the idea of whole product that you'll hear, and that's kind of the, the, the responsibility of the product manager is the ultimate success of customers using this thing. And that's why it's not just a designer. Exactly, and mm-hmm. whatever that entails. There is, at Heroku at least, PMs um, wrote a lot of documentation, yeah. mm-hmm. which one could argue how scalable that is, but mm-hmm. it, it requires a degree of um, user empathy mm-hmm. that's pretty deep. And at the end of the day, the PM is the user's advocate, yeah. is the customer advocate inside of the organization. Mm-hmm. And that's their job, is they are the person who is the proxy for all the people who are going to use this thing mm-hmm. every day who needs to make sure the why does it work this way can always be reasonably answered. One of the issues that, that I always have with, with designer as PM or, or engineer as PM, and you get this a lot in open source, is, is, is that you know, fundamentally the, the designers as PM or engineers PM, the, the job that they, that they like to do is they like to code or they like to design. And when it comes down to ensuring or sort of the accountability for that user empathy, yes. it's it's hard to bring that in when when you think of your job as as being fundamentally different to that. I'll say something maybe a little more controversial because oh. I know that Edith likes it when I get a little more controversial. In a way, what PMs are are empathy providers, and if you look at open source projects, they rarely elevate themselves to products, mm-hmm. certainly beyond, uh, rarely beyond the immediate and passionate interests mm-hmm. of the most active participants, because 
they don't require any empathy mm-hmm. in their creation. And I don't mean that they're not thoughtfully designed. I mean, true empathy in the sense of solving a problem in a way that entirely puts yourself in somebody else's shoes rather than just being able to think creatively about a problem that Mm -hmm. you have that you're solving in a useful way. And so this can be especially challenging in developer-facing companies because we all now naturally borrow from and come from open source communities Mm -hmm. where, again, that PM role can be so frustrating or confusing because there aren't PMs in open source culture. But Which is a mistake. It probably is. You know, there are things that are just kind of intrinsic to the nature of open source projects mm-hmm. that separate themselves from the kinds of problems they're going to be able to solve that maybe ultimately doesn't make it appropriate. But um, an organization that's building software, as opposed to an open source community, mm-hmm. are two very, very different things mm-hmm. and with very different missions mm-hmm. and very different purposes. And it's that ability to solve problems beyond problems that you intrinsically understand. Mm -hmm. That is where a PM is so urgently required. And I I say this with some passion because I think we've all seen organizations fall short in their ambition Mm -hmm. because they are incapable of working successfully on problems other than the ones that they themselves mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah that, just, that just is, is a terribly disappointing mm-hmm. state for an organization to be in, and frankly, a very kind of egocentric place mm-hmm. for an organization well, to be there, in. Very many of, these, uh, of the open source projects out there are almost diametrically or designed in the exact opposite direction from that because there, there's this expectation that if you're going to want to change, you're going to have to come with the code for it. And so rather than having an individual who learns about all the needs that their users have and forms it into some kind of roadmap documentation or, or whatever, it's like whoever arrives at the pull request, you know, is that is an opportunity to, to go in that direction or to not, but that's the only opportunity you yeah. have. And this is where there... Again, I offer no critique of any open source project for the way it conducts itself. Mm-hmm. I, again, I just say that the intentions of an open source project are distinct enough that those you should be very mindful when mm-hmm. applying those to a normal and commercial mm-hmm. software venture, which if you are charging money or have mm-hmm. taken money, you are. And I'll, I'll take a, a cheap shot at... Um, <laughs> The, the worst failure mode of this, which is this kind of fantasy of laurocracy, mm-hmm. right? Which is just, you know, where in the world we got the idea that this kind of self-organization, and the reason why it's, again, it's disappointing is because it's that egocentricity. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that I can somehow understand all of the problems completely in a way that I don't need to trust mm-hmm. that somebody else might have some ideas or opinions about how this thing, you know, might be mm-hmm. able to build. And I think at the end of the day, all software development processes are trust management mechanisms. And it's another way of looking at and I'm a big big believer that to have an effective software development process, you need to have a high trust environment. Yes. Because mm-hmm. you can't have good yeah. teams without high trust. Oh, that's and so interesting. Yeah. Holacracy is a mode of operating that says trust no one. Uh, I would have thought the opposite personally. Yeah. The assumption is no trust. I totally agree with you on the first part that like I think the best teams are the ones where you have a degree of trust. Yes. I thought the idea of holacracy is that you trust people to self-organize. Uh, I look at it differently. I think it's that because you don't trust anybody, mm-hmm. you can't be compelled to do anything. 
Mm-hmm. There is no mm-hmm. manager that will tell you what to do right. because so managers are untrustworthy. Manager. Mm. And so because nobody is trustworthy, nobody can be coerced mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. doing anything. I can only do what I am personally compelled to do. Or persuaded. Mm-hmm. Or persuaded to do. Because mm-hmm. my default position is I don't trust you. And so I will only do what I agree actively and explicitly as opposed to allowing a broader governance of trust that says, we're all on the same team and we're going to play baseball. And if you throw the ball at me, I'm generically going to agree to catch it versus every time the ball is thrown, assess whether or not I like you as a you know, yeah. second base person. Or whatever. No, I, I, think, I think it's so true. I mean, so much of our company is like, hey, I'm going to do this and I trust that you will do this other part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And trust is a essential part of team behavior. And either you view what we're doing as a team sport or not. And this, again, gets back to that. There there are many, many modes of operating and organizing software development projects, and not to say there's one perfect one, but to solve problems of a certain kind of scale or scope or depth or empathy, I do think you need Mm. team trust. Yeah, I care so much about this. It's funny because you talked earlier about how people talk about the right format of JSON and nobody talks about organizations. Like I think about organizations all the time. There was this article over the weekend about a huge failure of an eight billion billion with a B uh, telescope that NASA was having built by Northrop. Hasn't failed. The well, James Webb hasn't failed. We're all very, very well, hopeful it, that it will succeed. It's, it's, it's being delayed. It's being delayed. Did, my, did you, you, my heart would break if it didn't happen. Oh no! Yes. But did, did you read the same article? I did. And like they talked about like these simple failures, like when they nobody read the directions when they were assembling it. And then they used on these special valves, and then they used the wrong cleaning solution, destroyed the valves. Nobody can see this because we're on a podcast. I'm crying right now. Mm-hmm. And then another because one. this thing has to work. Yeah, and then another thing was like they, they have this very complicated sale, and then in the assembly they put the wrong hooks and eyes together. Like So like a $500 million sale because somebody didn't line up the hooks and eyes correctly. I'm glad they caught the problem. Mm. But, but that, that goes back to like you can't trust holacracy. Like somebody has to. Like there are so many failures. So I doubt that Northrop Grumman is a holacracy, but yes, uh-huh. it's uh, that is complicated stuff, or as they say, rocket science for mm. sure. But it wasn't like I'm like the failures that happened weren't complicated math. It was literally putting the wrong sales together. So the, the, there's a something that you talked about earlier. The the, the sort of the idea of. Uh, manufacturing versus versus creative in 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 software, and I I think that this applies especially in the in, in the open source model that everyone wants to be a creative, and no one wants to be part of a manufacturing line that other people put out there, and as a result, there you know everyone's trying to be creative even if the tasks that they have available for them are are manufacturing. Yeah, yeah, it it, it introduces another failure mode that I um, have seen that's kind of interesting. Where we, you know, our, our environments are so fluid because the technology is so fluid uh, and so so rapidly changing, and you know there are a lot of really smart creative people involved in these things that they end up wanting to take that creativity and apply it to how they're organizing themselves, mm-hmm. and they view it as part of their job to invent new ways mm-hmm. of. Organizing well, this, this software whole companies. flatness thing went on for for several years in the in 2011 2012 time where where every company and, and you know, Stripe GitHub in particular sort of screwed themselves with with this uh, yes. the, the fantasy I forgot, was of, Stripe uh, 
Holacracy? They, they didn't, they didn't they call didn't it that, long. but it was some sort of flatness thing. Yeah, greatest minds in our generation lost to Holacracy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, they seem to have made it out the other side. Yeah, they did, I, of course, um, brilliantly. Um, but uh, no shortage of pain um, mm. along the way, uh, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I felt that. Well, it's it's funny because at the beginning you talked about poets and librarians. Uh, we used to call it the innovator's dilemma, where you have the visionaries and then the lieutenants. You know, if you, as soon as you get to a certain stage of a company, not just for product, but you need people who will just run things. I find that 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 framing problematic. It's going to happen necessarily in any startup where you have, and I believe in strong founder cultures, obviously, but I would want to the greatest degree possible to hope that PMs uh, feel empowered to own, mm-hmm. you know, right. kind of the vision, vision locally. And obviously I think we've oh. all worked with PMs who are right. at their best doing so. So when you've got that innovator culture, the, the 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 founder culture, and now they're starting to bring in PMs, and you're trying to you're tra- trying to provide them with the with the local trust, but you're also trying to provide that holistic vision about what the product should be. How, how does that work? I think that's a uh, the moment, and certainly most, if not all, founders I've talked to at some point have that realization that ultimately what they're PMing mm-hmm. is the org itself, mm. and it's a a very unique challenge because let's say you're just unbelievably passionate about container virtualization and you are just or, like, or your, feature, your ideas or about feature flagging or feature flagging. Mm-hmm. You're just like, I mean, you cannot, you know, you know, shut your eyes without having a thousand insights into that. And then all of a sudden you really have to transition yourself to your main thing that you're really focused on and passionate about mm-hmm. is how you build and structure an organization which you're kind of like, I didn't mm-hmm. really entirely sign up for that, nor is that my mm-hmm. um, North Star, but this is what I need to be oh. to do to be successful. That transition is one where it's very important to be supporting mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, startup leaders because it's real challenging. I mean, the, the hardest thing that I found in that is, is that you have those, those thousands of product insights, but you can't just tell someone else. Right, you can't you can't just tell them what their job is, and of course they're not having the thousand product insights because they're they haven't been living and breathing it as you have for for years, and so now you, as a as a leader you have to sort of shut your mouth and and let them <laughs> let them take their jobs and and go with it and and produce what they're going to produce even though you can't even though it may physically pain you in certain occasions. And as to get back to uh, a theme I like to talk about a lot, trust. Mm-hmm. How do you as the founder you know trust these I hate the Random word trust. PMs. I love the word trust. Trust is the worst word. Really? I trust is the it, best it has, word. It has so many meanings. Like, you, you, there's no way that you can tell someone that you don't trust them. It, the, 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 there are versions where, where you're like, well, you know, we're, we're in a phase of, of company where there's like trust but verify or, or where, you know, I, I want to see what you're doing before we maybe commit the whole company to it. Or, but you can't use the word trust to I describe that. I use the word that. very explicitly because okay. I don't think we talk about it enough in organizations. Mm. And I think it's present Mm-hmm. In in a thousand different ways and unspoken, and you know its its absence or or abundance is mm-hmm. present. And by not speaking about it explicitly, we're not able to kind of resolve those mm-hmm. issues. And we we see its implications in a thousand organizational misbehaviors. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be trust, but it's it's the word. Yeah, but explicitly, like I think talking about. I mean, there's a better word. God bless. But like yeah. I, I think. We, we should be using 
organizational psychology language mm-hmm. more actively in talking about our teams so that we can become better at building teams. It's kind of like saying, and I don't mean to beat up any of this too much, but like, you know, I'm not going to use the word performance in mm-hmm. talking about yeah. my code. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, because the word is has a million, performance means mm-hmm. a thousand different things. Mm. Yes, it does. But if we have to have a culture and a way of recognizing mm-hmm. this as a value, yeah. And so yeah, so I, yeah. I completely agree that you need to be able to talk about it and that and that it's that it's important. The issue that I have with 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 the word or or, or with how people discuss it is that it's it's almost impossible to, uh, or or perhaps you know, one needs to be just very very good at it, and I'm not talking about trust and and situations in which it needs to improve perhaps without indicating a whole lot of extra messiness and negativity. Well, sometimes there is all that. Super like the, hard. Like the the worst, the worst, Super hard, the right? worst thing I saw was when um, there's engineering, then there's engineering program managers, there's product managers, and there's marketing, and the reason why this was this is that engineering just fundamentally did not trust the mm-hmm. product side. It absolutely, you know, involves a fantastic amount of emotion and difficulty, mm-hmm. and I would offer and hope that by Understanding the relationship between software development practice and trust, you can find a much, much easier way of kind of having those difficult conversations mm-hmm. where you don't have to say, you know, why doesn't person A trust person B? I mm-hmm. wouldn't want to have that conversation. I would want to say, how can this process help eng and release management or right, whatever right, right, that's right. a function work together? And frankly, a lot of, you know, the kinds of continuous delivery Processes mm-hmm. and practices we work on are those things. Right, right. How to they do these they things rely on them in a trusted way with teams, and these are trust frameworks. Yeah. It's it's how do we scale a function beyond the ability of an individual to do it mm-hmm. in a way that I can depend on on you picking up the ball and have mm-hmm. faith that we're all going to kind of you know we're doing our job. And a lot of it is how that's you know why we have visibility and that's yeah, why yeah. I can see mm-hmm. what you're doing all these things are important as well right, right. and I, I think that that's exactly it right you, the trust is is built on things like transparency and visibility and accountability and, and and that sort of thing but to tell my to tell my uh, awful story involving trust was the day that someone asked me uh, I was their manager uh, don't you trust me and there's no way to answer that question the, if you if you answer it yes, then you've given them a free ride to mm. do whatever the hell they like. You answer it no, they're going to quit. All right, so Mr. Gross, how would you have handled that? I'm sorry, if somebody came up and said, "Do you, you trust me?" Uh, d- don't you trust me? Like you're 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 giving them a feedback or direction or something, and then like, don't you trust me? I would if I were particularly on my game that day have <laughs> the the insight to say it's not my trust that it's important that you have. It's the trust of the people on your team. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that my job was to help make sure that you have that. That's a oh, solid, wow. solid that's, answer. That's, 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 a, that's a high five right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why, if it was a particularly yeah, good day. On a good day, yeah. Normally, <laughs> I would just say, get the hell out of my office. I'm <laughs> because I said so. Yeah. Clear out your desk. If, if it was a video game, like a little level up would have happened right then. Mm-hmm. Well, Thank you so much, Adam, for coming by. I mean, um, yeah, this has been wonderful. Thank it, you for um, entertaining my random musings. If you have any final takeaways on product management, there's so much more we can talk about. Oh, anytime. Should we do a closing of my three favorite books about product management? Because, like, it's a discipline. Why am I three? All right, can we, how about we do a real quick lightning round? Favorite 
books for people who want to be great product managers. Oh my. Yeah. I'll open with Innovator's Dilemma. The actual book, as yeah. much mm-hmm. as the things like a cliche is a term, the actual book, Innovator's Dilemma, mm-hmm. is was one of the most like mind rattling. Like, oh my god, somebody actually wrote down and formalized all the stuff that I kind of intuitively thought uh, about thinking about the implications of prioritizing different features and products. Amazing, amazing. If you haven't read it, go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it will I, rock I, your world. I, that's two thumbs up from me too. Uh, I'm I'm gonna go with um, inspired uh, Marty Kagan's book. I have to say I didn't read the book, but I did his <laughs> seminar. His seminar was the greatest thing I ever did. I presume he is that, doing uh, God's work in, yeah. in helping create the the field. It, it might sound like a designer book, but it's not. Um, the inmates are running the asylum by Alan Cooper. Mm-hmm. Total classic about how engineers design for engineers. Like mm-hmm. um, you know, that's how you end up with the classic joke of the VCR with thirty buttons. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just kind of like everybody shows up with code to check in. Everybody has their button mm-hmm. versus thinking about like I haven't we, read that. I'll have to check that out. How, well, he's like the the engineers designed this VCR instead of a person being just like I just want to watch Punky Brewster again mm-hmm. or tape the X Files tonight. Punky Brewster. Yes, that's all right. I'm I'm not. I'm going to pretend I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> You surely know what the X-Files are. There's a lot of millennials listening to this who are like, I've never heard of this. I I, I dropped Pac-Bell Park in in our all hands, and I didn't realize what I'd done. Okay, that one I haven't heard of. Oh. Yeah. That's what it's called, but that's for a topic (laughs) for a different day. Okay. So one more more lightning round or any other books? I can do one more. The uh, Four Steps to the Epiphany. Oh, Classic. Yeah, I... taught me how to do customer development. I didn't know there was such a thing. And just, you know, that that's that's what startups are. And that book is uh, just fabulous on it. I'll go super old school on you guys. Technologies of Freedom, Ithiel de Sola Pool, 1983. Oh, wow. It's classic. I actually like a lot of Dan O'Reilly's books just on people are irrational. Mm-hmm. So you can't make all decisions with data. Hmm. And it's kind of a cliche now, but there was this book called uh, Data Crunchers that came out about 11 years ago. And it was the first time that anybody really explained that you could be systematic about stuff like Google Analytics. Awesome. So Adam, thanks so much for coming. It's been lovely being here. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of CircleCI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Thank you.